Okay, so we're on lesson 15 today, uh, interpreting the book of Acts. <clears throat> so we have been moving along through the New Testament, <clears throat> studying how to interpret scripture, and now we going through sections through just different genres in, in the Bible. And um, as we're thinking in terms of this wide river that separ- of culture and history that separate us from the original audience, um, that river will be narrower in the New Testament, but it will become wider and wider as we go back to the Old Testament. So that's why we started with the New Testament, so there's more point of commonality between us and the original audience. So today we're jumping right in in the book of Acts, so that's, that will be chapter 11 in your textbook. So interpreting the book of Acts. How about we start with a word of prayer, and um, we'll ask for the Lord's help in our understanding of these things. Gracious Father, thank you for... Your words uh, revealed to us for the uh, amazing clarity that it brings to our understanding on uh, how you made this world and how you have designed man to be, a, to be worshipers of you and how we have fallen into sin, but you have redeemed, you came and brought redemption to those who believe. And you started this new institution, and this is what we will be studying today, is the church that you have bought with your precious blood. And I pray that as we look at the birth and growth of the church in the book of Acts, that will be an encouragement even for us today. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, amen. All right, so <clears throat> you know that we have... Four versions of the gospel, so you can compare the different narratives and kind of add up some bits and pieces that you don't find in one gospel, and you can kind of add to the other gospel and and make one continuous story. Unfortunately, we don't have that with uh, the birth and growth of the early church. We just have one account, and that's the book of Acts. Um, We obviously have the the letters, the New Testament letters, some written by, by apostles, others not written by apostles. But we have those letters, and it helps us to reconstruct some of the history. But primarily, we have Acts as our account of how the church started and how the church started growing and spreading throughout the world. It's an uh, exciting book, um, and it, you you can title, we, we call it Acts of the Apostles. You will see in your Bible there. And um, since Luke focuses on Peter and Paul, it, it's in lesser known characters like Stephen and Philip, much more than the original 12 apostles. Um, a more precise title would be The Continuing Acts of Jesus by his spirit, through the apostles, and other early church, early Christian leaders. But that would be a very long title, so we stuck with Acts. Um, So the book of Acts shows us and tells us how God works through the early church to change the world, really. As um, some have reported of, of Paul and his preaching, that the men that came to turn the world upside down have arrived here, too. And, and that, that's an exciting journey. In Acts, we read about the Holy Spirit coming to empower believers, about Peter's Pentecostal sermon where thousands are saved, about signs and wonders, about a vibrant Christian community. We read also of Stephen's death, the first martyr, We read of Philip carrying the gospel to the Samaritans and of Paul's famous missionary journeys. I think those are one of the most exciting um, things. I remember um, we spent one semester in Israel, and they told us, you guys have one week off for spring break to go wherever you want to go, 
in Europe, whatever it is. And I thought, boy, I want to go to Greece because that's, you know, can follow Paul's steps. And it, it was exciting. We barely slept because we were going from one place to another in one week. So trying to condense all of those things in, in one week, it was exhausting. But it was really cool. Um, <clears throat> so in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus had to go to Jerusalem to accomplish salvation for the entire world. In Acts, the good news of salvation goes forth from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. So as a record how the gospel marched triumphantly from Jerusalem to Rome, Acts is packed with <clears throat> spiritual power by the Spirit and adventure. So who would not want to read Acts? <laughs> it is an exciting book. Acts carries its own set of interpretive challenges, though. How does Acts relate to the Gospel of Luke? The, the two books were written by the same author. Is Acts merely a, a record, and this is something that we'll be discussing today, of what happened? It's just purely history. Or does it also promote the Christian belief about God? It is, is it teaching theology? Why did Luke write Acts, and how does its message relate to us? How did he organize the book? And most importantly, how do we understand the message of the book of Acts? This last question is particularly important because I think we look back to the early church and we tend to um, not necessarily idolize, but we, we make it into this very unique thing, and, and, and all these people were super, had superpowers. They were particularly different from us, and, and they weren't. They were believers just like you and me. Um, and so it is helpful for us to have a, a good understanding on how does that relate to us. We tend to look to act as a blueprint for church of all ages, so this is the, raises the interpretive question related to understanding the message of Acts. Should we take Acts as normative, as something to be followed by every, um, every part of the church? So the church in every age should imitate the experiences and practices of the early church? Or should we read Acts merely as descriptive? as just, you know, this is history, and maybe not having, not necessarily binding to the present church. So in this class and the next, we're going to be discussing and trying to answer these questions, okay? So the first one that I want to answer is the relationship of the book of Acts with Luke, with the gospel of Luke. Right. So most scholars believe that the author of God, the Gospel of Luke also wrote Acts. There's very little uh, contestation about this, um, in that he intended to produce one book, two volume of one, one piece. Originally, these two volumes were circulated among the churches even as a single work. So during the second century, the Gospel of Luke joined the other three Gospels, and Acts began to circulate on its own. So they combined all the Gospels together and separated uh, Luke and Acts. There are some strong indications, though, that Luke intended to link these two books closely together in telling this story. So here's some evidences of it. The opening verses of the two books imply a connection. So let's turn to Luke chapter 1. And do we have someone with a microphone passing? So Luke chapter 1, and if someone can read verses 1 through 4. Have our friend Zach there passing the mic. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those 
who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So Luke wrote his gospel to address specifically to Theophilus, probably a, a, a rich person who funded the research that Luke did, um, talking to eyewitnesses. And, but the purpose, the purpose of him writing was that he would know the exact truth. Now, if you turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, he will state the, why he wrote that book as well. So Acts 1, and someone else can read it, 1 and 2. The first account, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Mm -hmm. All right, so he says that there is a first account, there is a first book that I wrote about everything that Jesus began to teach and do until the day that he was taken up to heaven. Well, you don't read any, any other Gospels about Jesus being taken up to heaven. You read that on Acts. Um, and so, and he says, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders back to the apostles whom he had chosen. So there is a continuation. He's implying a continuation. Jesus just began to do this. But there is a continuation to what he began to do. And that will be continued by the church. Now, this new institution that the Lord has created. Luke reference in Acts 1.1, the first account, obviously referring to his gospel, where he wrote all about what Jesus began to teach and do. In the sequel, Acts, Luke continues to tell the story by showing how Jesus acted by his spirit through his church. And you will notice that both of volumes are addressed to Theophilus. It's the same person. Also, there are a lot of parallels between the accounts. I, it's so cool when you read it all the way through. You read Luke and you read Acts and you're like, oh, that feels like a repeat. Why, why is that Luke kind of chose some of the similar accounts? Some of the prominent themes in Luke's gospel reoccur in Acts again. Uh, there is an emphasis in prayer, uh, in the work of the Spirit, and then the gospel for all people. The Gospel of Luke is one of the Gospels that emphasizes the, the, a lot of relationship of Jesus with Gentiles. Certain miracles in Acts closely resemble the miracles in Luke. So compare the healing of um, Enos in Acts 9, 32-35, and the healing of the paralytic man in Luke 5. Were raising of Tabitha from the dead from in Acts 9 and the raising of Jairus' daughter in Luke 8. In fact, this is an interesting one, the, the raising of, of these two uh, little girls. Um, <clears throat> the Aramaic commands that was given to this dead woman, in, they're very similar. They just change one letter for um, the... Uh, Tabitha, Tabitha in Acts, it was said, Tabitha cum, so Tabitha, get up. And for the uh, girl in Jairus' daughter, Talitha, it's Talitha cum. Little girl, come up, get up. So I think Luke was paying attention to these little details to make it the parallel. Both Luke and Acts feature a journey motif. In the gospel, Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem. You see, it, it, he talks about driving things through a historical and geographical perspective and saying how Jesus was moving and trying to get to Jerusalem to be sacrificed, to face his death. In the book of Acts, as you develop and you start reading Paul's story, you realize that it is really everything is leading up to his death as well. 
then through his imprisonment in Rome. So there is a geographical move happening. In Acts, Paul makes a number of journeys, and the climatic one being his journey from Judea to Rome, to Rome for a trial before Caesar. And then lastly, there is the ending of Luke that overlaps with the beginning of Acts. So how about we, we read it? Um, someone can read the first, the last few verses there of Luke 24. Only Luke talks about uh, the ascension. So verse 50 in chapter 24, that through verse 53 Luke 24, 50 to 53. We got Steve over there. So one sec, Steve. <laughs> and he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And then um, the the last two. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Mm-hmm. If you turn to Acts, he fills in the gap more. So starting on verse 3. To these he also, speaking of Jesus, presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and is speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded to not leave Jerusalem. It's a very similar ending and the beginning here. But wait until the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized by the Holy, with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had get together, got together, they were asking to him, and they have a whole discussion there. And then verse 9 says, After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and the cloud received him out of their sight. And it's um, a pretty interesting account, uh, the ending and the beginning there. So Acts, truly slows down its narrative substantially. So if you compare even the endings, if you see in the Gospel of Luke, he kind of slows down the account to give more details about Jesus' death and his going to Jerusalem. In the book of Acts as well, there's a slowdown when and Paul is going to Rome, imprisoned. Like Jesus, Paul determines that one a specific point to begin journeying toward Jerusalem. Luke may or may not have written his account after Paul's eventual death, but he certainly see parallels in the closing stages of the lives of both Jesus and Paul. These kinds of similarities between Luke and Acts suggest that Luke saw the life of a faithful disciple as often imitating that of Christ, both in its spiritual power and the necessity of suffering. So in Jesus' own words, Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So when Jesus speaks about repentance and forgiveness of sin being preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem, we automatically think of verse 8. That's the outline of the book. I think Josh has a, a picture there. Um, on the outline of Acts. So what what does he say there? But you will receive power of the Holy Spirit um, has come upon you, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the most remotest parts of the earth. So it's moving away from, you have there Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 5, chapters eight through oh, 6 through 9, 
would be Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, or the uttermost parts of the earth, is chapters 10 through 28. So it's very easy to follow because you see this geographical movement happening in the book. Luke links his gospel and acts closely together in two parts as a single story. The God who acted in the mighty ways in the Old Testament is also, he revealed himself supremely in Jesus Christ, is now working by his spirit. So Luke presents to us a grand story of God's salvation. We, we should always remember, therefore, to read Acts in continuation to Luke. So what Jesus began to do during his ministry on earth, he will continue to do through his spirit in the book of Acts. As a practical matter, before you study Acts, it will be helpful to read Luke. So if you want to get on a long reading, a reading spree, you can, you can do that, Luke and Acts. Now, what kind of book is Acts? Acts is a story. Like the Gospels, Acts is a, a narrative. Uh, it, how then it differs from the Gospels? It, it doesn't really have as much differences from the Gospels. You will see a lot of similar elements. You'll see the miracles. You won't have parables, but you'll have preaching. You'll have teaching happening. You have persecution, but you will remember when we were studying the Gospels that that was called a theological narrative. We called the Gospels a theological narrative or a Christological biography. Um, the evangelist wrote, who wrote the two central purposes in mind, for one, was to tell about Jesus and Two, to send the message to their readers by the way they arranged the individual stories into a larger story. Now, because of the close connection between Luke and Acts, we can't expect these two books to have much in common when it comes to its literary type. So the similarities between Gospel of Luke Gospel and the book of Acts will point to us these uh, to help us even to interpret it in the same way. The primary difference is that the Gospels concentrate in one person. It is Jesus of Nazareth, while the story of Acts focuses on several key church leaders, but mainly two characters. Who are they? Paul is one. Who is the other? Spends a long time with him. I heard here, Peter, Paul and Peter. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't mean that there aren't other special characters in there. We have Stephen, and takes a long portion there of the book as well. Um, and uh, Apostle James is there. So Acts as a narrative. Acts as a narrative implies <clears throat> that we must employ the tactics for interpreting stories. There is a plot structure. There is a climax. There is character development. There is intrigue. There's twists to what's going to happen. We, are, we have already stated that narrative <clears throat> often teaches more indirectly than in didactic literature without becoming any less normative. There is principles for us to uh, apply. Now, here is the question. Um, the whole discussion, do we read it as purely as descriptive or purely as de uh, prescriptive? Let me explain these two terms. So when you approach a book in a descriptive manner, you are basically understanding that what the author describes in a narrative is what happened. It's just describing it. When you read a certain piece of literature as prescriptive, what the author intends as normative truth for his readers. is something that they need to obey and to follow to the T. So that's, that's the prescriptive way of reading it. Um, these scholars, Fia and Sturgeon, correctly added to their maxim where they say, unless the scripture explicitly tells us we must do something, what is only narrated or described does not function in a normative way. And then he clarifies, a lesson can be demonstrated on other grounds that the author intended to function in this way. Now, 
which begs the question. Well, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 talks about the word of God being breathed out and useful. All of Scripture is useful for teaching, reproving. So there is principles. There is norm, right? There is rules to be followed. Um, so since we discussed that in the Gospels, we need to keep the balance before we draw some conclusions. Yet one must proceed with much more cautiously when direct commands are absent. How then should we interpret Acts? Primarily, we need to study the entire book to determine if the specific events form a consistent pattern throughout or if the positive models Luke presents vary from one situation to another. Right? Is this being consistently repeated throughout the book, or is just some occasions that this is happening? This way will suggest that Luke was emphasizing a normative, consistent principle. If there is a repetition pattern, if there is um, uh, not very much variation between one and the other, then the applications may change from the, the time and place. If those things are not present, there's no consistency, there's no uh, repetition, there is no uh, variation. We will be more cautious to say, oh, this is su supposed to be followed to the T. All right, now I want to turn this, this question for you. What, is the, what are the risks of going too much one way and too much on the other? What are the risks, let's start with being looking at the book of Acts and reading the book of Acts purely as descriptive? What could happen? I have one over there. So the question was, looking at it as purely descriptive, mm -hmm. um, then do you lose the, um, the source of reason on looking at, for example, so how does the, the, the word of God show that healings took place? Mm -hmm. And if you wanted to say, okay, it looks here that in, in Acts, it shows a few healings, and mm -hmm. it would not show that these people um, that were healed um, were in any way, um, let me re uh, reverse it. So, if you have someone who's been paralyzed their entire life, mm. their limbs are super skinny that aren't working. So here we would see healings that happened to people that were paralyzed for many years, and then they were, you know, jumping and leaping and, and, and praising God. I'm sh these, they, they, their, their, their limbs then had, were, were, were healed. Mm. Whereas you see healings today or, or false healings where people that are supposedly healed don't have this situation where they show them mm -hmm. before where they have legs that are emaciated mm -hmm. and after where they actually have legs that look healthy again. Mm -hmm. We don't have that. So we use acts not only as descriptive, but we use it also as prescriptive for what a genuine healing looks like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Obviously, one of the, the words to keep in mind is continuity and discontinuity. There are some things that the beginning of the church that you don't see continuing through um, through the generations of the church, right? And you don't see healings continuing. But then you can use the book of Acts as a parameter to say, you know, a, a healing <laughs> in the Old Testament, as Andrew is saying, it, it looked this way. And you look at the, all the fake stuff that is happening today, and you realize, like, that has nothing to do. It, it is nothing, looks nothing like what it was. So there is an element that you can use as uh, as a parameter to even identify error or good. What else? Purely descriptive. I think um, we we don't take much th this approach, but there are um, some some churches that would look at Acts and say, you know, this fulfilling of the Great Commission. It happened already, so that there's no bearing on us. We shouldn't be thinking about missions. This is not um, anything that the church should be involved in anymore because they already fulfilled it. It's, it's just describing it. Like, wait a minute. No, where's the, the uttermost part of the earth is stopped at Rome? <laughs> it, 
it, it didn't stop there. It's kind of interesting when you start reading, you finish reading Acts, and it's like, okay, what happened? What happened after that? What, 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 did Paul die? Did, did he survive? Or Obviously, we know from church history that he was um, eventually killed by um, the, the Roman emperor. So, um, But, you know, there is that sense of, of continuity of the church. And if we look at this purely, as purely descriptive, you won't glean... The, the directions and the guidance for missions, um, even. So, now, I think the most common error that we see, it is really when people look at this primarily as normative or prescriptive. What are some of the things that you have maybe have come across? If people look at this, you got to follow to the T what Book of Acts is describing. Any takers? on this form of interpreting acts that you have seen, that you have heard? It's fairly common. I mean, it goes along with what we were just talking about, that we are all to, can have the gifts of healing and tongues especially as we see in a few passages, starting in Acts 2, mm-hmm. um, is tongues, our healings, miracles. Uh, people take that and run with it mm-hmm. as if that is the only thing we ought to be doing as the church is going out and healing and doing actually miracles. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one major aspect. So they use the book of Acts as a you know, foundational point to, to do that kind of ministry. Yeah, yeah. So looking at uh, healings and um, these, all these sort of miracles that is, are described in Acts, um, and we, we kind of miss some of the, the, the supernatural power because you look at <clears throat> what's actually being done today. It, it, it's just, boy, it, 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 it's so different. It, it belittles the work of the Spirit during that age. Um, and, and so... Um, it's one risk to, to do that, right? Um, what else? What are other dangers here associated with looking at purely normative as pre- or prescriptive? house churches where they say, well, you know, the early church had house churches, mm-hmm. so we should still have those. And of course, it's like, well, what about church discipline? And what about mm-hmm. qualified men? And what about, so mm-hmm. that does come up where someone will say, I've, I've given up on the, 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 the local church. Mm-hmm. We're going to have it at our house. We're going to have, uh, you know, we're just going to do it like they did back in, in Acts. And mm-hmm. it's unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And why they, they did that because they were under persecution. It was the beginning of the church age. Um, and looking at that in a way that um, if you study it, then you'll mm-hmm. come to that conclusion that it would, it's not normative. It's mm-hmm. what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so when you're talking about the <clears throat> matter of house churches, oh, that's how they did. You know, I, I'm, I don't want to go to a, a organization. I'm going to gather with my family and get a, a, a few other people. And now we're, this is a church. And it, it really is kind of stretching it. And, and the question, I, I think, when I hear this kind of interpretation, say, well, well, just look at Acts. I'm like, well, look at the rest of Acts. <laughs> do, you, do you take everything that is in there? Um, do you see Ananias and Sapphira, someone dropping dead in your, in your house church <laughs> for, for lying to someone? You don't. Well, how come you can pick and choose what you're going to so there is a, uh, we all would agree that there is a selective way that we approach these models and these <clears throat> descriptions. We can't all just look at it and say, this is exactly what we need to do. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Talking about, but um, a lot of people take 
the passages where the apostles go to particular places where the gospel had just been preached and the people receive the Holy Spirit. They lay hands on them. Whoa. Perhaps they haven't received the Holy Spirit. And so there's this idea, and again, we see this in a lot of charismatic Pentecostal circles where people are seeking a second blessing mm -hmm. um, and trying to seek some kind of experience other than what they initially experienced, which was the new birth, which is enough. You know, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean that we are not filled with the Holy Spirit, as Ephesians says, but the second blessing that mm -hmm. we have to, just like what we see in these few instances. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, another one there. I think also um, relevant to church polity, Mm -hmm. um, Acts 6 is often quoted mm -hmm. uh, prescriptively to um, justify congregational voting decisions mm -hmm. um, where it says call together the congregation of the and choose among you mm -hmm. uh, relevant to a certain issue that was developing in the early church um, so it's a that used prescriptively I think has um, transitioned historically uh, many uh, church governances um, as well. Yeah, yeah. So there is an element that um, Acts does fill in the gaps for the letters, right? It, it, the letters are primarily instructive. They are normative. They're binding to us as, as far as it's not limited to the culture or to the history to that specific city that was being written to a specific scenario, they do relate to us more than even Acts does. But Acts does fill in the gap. How did, and, and, and I think the helpful way to look at Acts is we're looking here not as the church as its final stages. We're looking at here at the church in its development. So there were some elements that were present in the beginning of the church. They're not present today. You don't have apostles anymore. But in the beginning of the church, it was primarily led by the apostles, men that were eyewitnesses of Christ, the living Christ and resurrected Christ. There is nobody today <laughs> that has been an eyewitness of Christ and um, of his resurrection. So that element of the apostolic ministry is not present in the church anymore. Um, you don't see elders in the beginning of the church, right? You see these seven men that get appointed there in the beginning, but they're not elders. They're not deacons. Um, it, what are they? Well, it is a transitional period. There is a development. Then you get to the end of Acts, and you start you seeing Paul saying that he's appointing elders, so there is a progression, there is a, a development of what the church is going to look like at the end. And then the ladders come in and fill in those gaps and give us more direction. But yeah, what Dylan is saying here, models of church government and organization in Acts disclose an even more bewildering variety of forms. We've got Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, all legitimately point to this passage in Acts to support their views of church structure and leadership. So in Acts 6, the entire congregation chooses apostles' helpers. In chapter 13, a select group of church leaders chooses Barnabas and Saul for their missionary ministry. In Acts 20, Paul resembles a bishop who convenes all the Ephesian elders for instruction. All right, so the, the, the Presbyterian and Episcopalian church would look at this description and say, oh, see, Paul is acting here as a bishop. He is one that is overseeing other elders, other churches. And, oh, that's what we should do. Uh, we need to have one person, one big person ahead of all these other leaders uh, in different churches. So each of these models in turn draws a uh, on various Jewish and Greco-Roman precedents Luke views all of these models as appropriate examples of a va valid leadership under various circumstances in various cultures. To apply them today, one needs to look for analogous circumstances in our culture, and we also need to see is there consistency on the way that this was being done. 
from beginning to end, this, this, does this remain? Or did it change as time progressed? And if it did, can you find an element here in the, go- in the letters that will say, you should do this? So it's not a, a mere coincidence that decision affecting everyone in a local congregation, there's a, a discussion there in the beginning. Um, so on the other hand, sometimes patterns of ministry and mission remain constant throughout Acts. A good example is how Luke understands the feeling of the Holy Spirit. Every time believers believe, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. We see that some of that happened kind of not at the same time in the beginning, but as you approach the end of the book, it is more consistently that the moment that they believe, they receive the Spirit. Um, In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul describes different results of the Spirit feeling. There is praising, there is worshiping, there is thanking of God, there is submitting to other believers. But these descriptions are complementary rather than contradictory. A a proper doctrine of Scripture will not subordinate Acts to Paul simply because the one is narrative and the other is didactic literature. Neither will it subordinate Paul to Acts because of an inherent preference, inherent preference by some phenomena in Acts, such as speaking in tongues. We we stand with both. We don't put one against the other and say, no, this is the normative and this is not. The Spirit inspired all scripture, not one genre trumps the other. So, uh, one, one example here, I think that there is a da- that the danger, well, comes to mind missions as well. Um, people having visions, oh, I, I, the Lord gave me this vision that I should go to Somalia, or that I should go... <laughs> I don't know. You know, I, I sometimes talk to friends of mine that are in the mission field. And um, I just want to be careful the way you phrase things. Oh, the Lord called me to this specific place. And I, I really struggle with that. I remember there was one couple that um, the wife was struggling. She, she did not want to go. Um, but they said, well, I just had to submit to the Lord because this is, you know, and they get there in a mission field and, and they're finding all these closed doors and they're not believing. I said, boy, it, did you really pray about this? Did you, did you seek the direction of your church leadership to see if that's where the Lord is really leading you? Uh, because it, it's, it's, this, it's very subjective. Who can tell you that God has called you? I, I have many times <laughs> when people ask me, what are, you, what are you doing, Ronaldo? Are you, are you guys going to Brazil as missionaries? I say, well, um, that's our plan. But the Lord can direct as, as he, uh, however he pleases. And so um, putting, your, putting your plans, a stamp of God, God call me, like the, he called people in the uh, early church, it, it's quite a dangerous thing to do. Um, so, sorry for the side note here. <laughs> um, here's another example that is, um, it could be dangerous. If you read in, in, a, in this normative way, uh, remember Gamaliel's advice to the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin concerning the 12? He says, leave these men alone. So, um, they were, uh, I think it's Peter and James there, um, and they were arrested. And then these, uh, Gamaliel was the leader of the Sanhedrin, and he says, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose of, or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men, you will find only ourselves fighting against God. Right, so the Lord used that that advice given by Gamaliel to release the apostles. So these uh, secured their freedom. But when Paul encountered magical religion in Ephesus, comparable to what we would call today the occult, he employed employed a different strategy. He didn't say, "Well, let these men be. You know, if they are from God, we'll, you know, kind of using the same counsel given by Gamaliel." 
No, that's not at all what Paul did. He strongly exhorted the people to abandon such practices and to burn the scrolls, the books containing incantations. He did not allow that to go on. Um, Today, Islam is the largest and most powerful non-Christian religion in the world. Historically, Christians really kind of neglected the evangelism of, of Muslims. But after... Uh, 1,400 years, it has hardly gone away. So while God in his sovereignty graciously used Gamaliel's logic to release the apostles then, we wouldn't say, oh, you see, they're, you know, if it is of God, they'll continue. Uh, no. Just because something worked for one specific situation and scenario, that doesn't mean that it applies to everything else. So looking for dismembered verses from the book of Acts to come up with a doctrine and a statement. It is not consistent with the rest of Scripture. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, I'm going to skip here a little bit. Probably the most important examples of consistent patterns of Acts relates to Luke's main theme, the expansion of the gospel from the Jewish to the Gentile territory. I think that is the one thing that we can all agree. This is the gospel expanding. Um, amid the great, amidst the greatest diversity of the, the sermons that Peter and Paul preached throughout the pages of Act, Acts, we can discern a common um, proclamation of salvation. Is the word kerygma that they use there is proclaiming of salvation. The first Christians consistently focused on the death, resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus as the core to their message. So because of who Jesus was and what he did, all people must know and repent in order to receive forgiveness of sins. To be sure, the message occurs elsewhere in the New Testament, but if it did not, it is cons its consistency appearance in Acts would make it normative. So the message of salvation that you read in Acts, that is consistent. It is the same. And that you can take as normative. Even if we didn't have the Pauline letters, I think that alone would make the message normative for salvation. Now, you will notice a diversity within the sermons. They don't sound exactly the same. They have the common elements of, you know, Christ died, he was raised, um, you need to repent to, to believe in order to be saved. But there is a, a different way that that is presented. Um, so when Paul was preaching to the Jews, Peter and Paul appealed to the fulfillment of the scripture. He referred back to the Old Testament because that's what they had it as a reference, is that they already had some scripture some knowledge of what God was going to do. But when addressing the Stoics and the Epicureans in Athens, he referred to them, to God as an unknown God that they were not uh, aware of. They saw an altar that didn't have any image that had, this, that had it written, the unknown God. And Paul is saying, you know, that is the God that I want to introduce you that you don't know. So when he speaks to the superstitious believers in the mythology, in the Greek mythology in Lystra, Paul appeals to the testimony of the Creator, as the founder uh, of as the founder of in rain and harvest, right? Because they were worshiping these elements of creation, and so Paul is saying, you know, the one true God is the one that actually brings rain and then help you with the harvest. So he is presenting these different groups of people with trying to, to bring it and find the common ground where um, to make the message clear to them. Uh, he's not modifying the means of salvation. It is still Christ. Death and resurrection is the source of salvation for all who believe. It is through repentance, right? We see with the Thessalonians who were worshipers of idols. What happened to them? It says that they turned away Stopped following those gods, and they follow, became followers of Jesus Christ. So they believe the same message of salvation. Now, the way that the apostles presented it was different. Now, I want to take these last few minutes here to discuss something. Because this, it, it's called the contextualizing the gospel. 
all right? Which is bringing the gospel to the context of the group of people that you're trying to reach. This phrase has been misused and taken too far because, you know, people will say, well, you, in order to make the gospel more presentable, you know, you got to come to the reality of the people. So um, when they look at people groups, they're not thinking Chinese or Japanese or uh, sometimes you have to address uh, some cultural elements that, you know, uh, I think I think a cultural element in Brazil is uh, a syncretism, is that they they tend to, oh, you know, you do whatever, whatever is best for you, you know, and you can kind of do a, a, a hodgepodge of whatever, you know, you take this one good thing of this religion and this one good thing of that religion, and you put it together and you have your own thing, you know, and you, you do what it works for you. It's a syncretism of religion. There is a um, um, uh, pragmatism, what it works, right? So when presenting the gospel to Brazilians, I will have to say, you know, Christ is exclusive. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, there is no other way. You know, if you want to come to him, it is on his terms. So in this sense, contextualizing is okay because you were, you were addressing the barriers to the God that that specific group of people has for the gospel. Now, how can someone can take this too far? I'll, I'll pose it on you. I don't know if you might have been exposed to some of these ways of um, contextualizing the gospel. Is that something totally new to you? <laughs> Well, if I need to be all things to all people, I need to go and drunken carousing with my neighbors or my coworkers in order to relate with them so they'll hear me when I share the gospel. Mm -hmm. I, I got to bring to where they are. So I got to go to a bar where my coworkers are. Um, but there is another one. So I think when it comes to the Muslim context, some people might go so far as to like go do the prayers with them, but they would they would pray to Jesus. They're not praying to Allah like a Christian missionary would say. Well, I'll go and do the prayers, but I'm actually praying to Jesus. Or I'll use the term Allah, which does mean God, but they don't define who Allah is. And so you're both coming at it from yeah. different definitions in order to contextualize it. Yeah, yeah. The gospel message hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. It's still the gospel no matter who you're speaking to, and we can see that in Acts very clearly. No matter who you speak to, the gospel is the gospel. Mm -hmm. And the idea of uh, seeker-friendly churches, you know, well, we got to act more like the world so that people feel more comfortable coming in here, but in reality, the church is to feed the sheep, not entertain the goats. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Amen to that. When I was a missionary in India, I would often see Christians, especially in the villages, and I even attended some of these, mm -hmm. um, really kind of ignorant at that time, but they would try to utilize or incorporate Hinduistic elements mm -hmm. into their service so as to bring Hindus in. So, for example, instead of during communion, instead of using juice or wine or bread, they would use coconut milk or mm -hmm. coconut water. Um, actually, or they would use incense or stuff like that, and it looked like a Hindu service just so they could appeal to um, the wider Hinduistic audience. Mm -hmm. So they would incorporate all those elements. Yeah, yeah. And I, one more. <laughs> just a just also on how the culture is appeased, um, early American slavery. Um, Bible was used to justify the mistreatment of people um, mm -hmm. because of the cultural element of the past. Mm. Um, also, just all the gospel according to capitalism mm -hmm. and um, those types of things where the gospel's expanded or the social gospel, 
um, as it relates to uh, just uh, what it is here and now as mm. opposed to eternal life with Christ. Mm. So always moving away from Christ, his work, and moving towards culture and mm. elevating man instead of God mm. is a real danger. Yeah. If we think of the Great Commission in terms of um, reaching out to the ends of the earth and the nations, right? We're not called to um, make Christian American Christians. We're not called to make Jewish Christians in the same way that when the apostles were preaching, they didn't try to make little Jewish Christians. No, they, they're making Christians. And, you know, there is a point where culture will be confronted. Uh, you just can't absorb the, 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 some elements of culture. It does, is, that is not to say that everything in a culture, in a given culture, is bad. But it is to say, if it is challenged by Scripture, we don't, we don't endorse that. And so in, in our approach to bring the gospel, we make sure that we keep the message central. I mean, there might be variations where you have to address the heart of the issue of, of, of that people group. Um, in more, you know, some, some cultures are very shame-based. So you've got to address that to, to, to get the gospel. But at the same time, you don't change the message. Um, I had seen different contexts where, for instance, when they try to do a Bible translation, for instance. And some cultures, um, it, they sacrifice animals to their gods. But the animal they sacrifice is a chicken. They don't have lambs near, so they don't have that as a reference. Um, and so for them, <laughs> they would you know, say, oh, behold, the chicken of God. Can you imagine? But there are translations out there. Well, what did John the Baptist say? Behold, the Lamb of God. Now you're changing the word of God to, to make it that element to merge. And, and, you know, you can teach them. It's an animal. <laughs> It was used because then you were eliminating all the Old Testament background. Why was that a lamb that was used in sacrifice? Well, that was the animal that God chose in, in the past to be a sacrifice. So uh, you see the implications of this contextualizing and taking it too far. Um, now we, we want to... Uh, you know, make make the church a, a commune center. <laughs> All right? You look at the, uh, the the people selling their properties and living together on the same house, and, and it's like, well, we're gonna we're gonna replicate that. Be careful. <laughs> uh, that was not prescriptive. So, as I, I appreciate what Tim was saying, you know, the gospel remains the same. The role of the church is to proclaim it, to teach it. Yes, we will reach different cultures. Even within, and we think about Minneapolis, it's such a, 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 a diverse population. I go to the Walmart down the street, and I see Somalians, I see Mexicans, I see all sorts of people there. Um, and, and I'm certain that the way that they will receive the gospel, there are some challenges specific to their culture. The message of salvation, the Savior doesn't change. The method of salvation doesn't change. When we think of contextualizing, the gospel is you're addressing the challenges that the person might have for that message. You think about Jesus evangelizing the rich young ruler was totally different than Jesus evangelizing Zacchaeus. Both were rich, all right? But the way they approached was different. Um, the message of salvation was the same. The source of salvation was the same. All right. So let's, let's close in prayer. We'll continue our discussion in the book of Acts. Don't miss next time. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and you will be forever and ever. 
Lord, your word is true, and we can rely on it. Lord, we're just so thankful that you have uh, left written the, the beginning and the development of the church and that we can look for models uh, to follow and ex- good examples and bad examples to avoid. Lord, we're thankful that there are even uh, um, areas where we can uh, follow as guidance, as norm, and particularly in the matter of the gospel. Lord, we're just so thankful that you are a God of order, a God of consistency, and the method of salvation remains the same through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to those who believe and repent. Lord, I do pray that as we study Acts, Lord, that we would be ashamed even the way that we think of, 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 of sharing the gospel and proclaiming your words. This message is still needs to go out. It still needs to go forth. And I pray, Lord, that as we take the time uh, reading this, that you will challenge us, that your spirit will move us, will embolden us to open our mouths to proclaim the good news in Christ Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.